So we are going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And so if you brought your Bibles with you, it will be helpful to turn to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 and 14 this morning. And I'm calling this sermon, The Strategies of Satan. So if, if, if you don't have a Bible, find one in the seat pocket around you. I'm sure it's there. It'll be helpful to just leave it open and look at the, the text we're going to be reading this morning. But I want to bring you up to speed, kind of give you a quick synopsis of what we have gone through in the book of Acts so far. If we were to go back to Acts chapter 9... Acts chapter 9 is where Saul of Tarsus, he's, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to capture Christ, Christians. He's going to arrest men and women and put them in prison for follow, being followers of Jesus Christ. Well, between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13, it's somewhere between 11 to 14 years later. So there's a lot of time has, has passed as we have been in the, the, the book of, of Acts. So from Acts chapter 9, that's where Saul gets saved. And then if we go to Acts chapter 11, there is great persecution that starts spanning out that we read because of a man by the name of Stephen. Even earlier in Acts, there was this man, his name was Stephen. He was a leader of the first Christian church. He was a deacon, and he was martyred. Stephen was actually the first Christian mar martyr. If you remember, the powers be grabbed him and they drug him out to, into the outside the city and they hurled rocks at him until he was dead. And it was his death that flamed, fanned the flames of the gospel, if you will. And so we know in the book of Acts, it tells us that the men, they, they, because of persecution, they left Jerusalem, they started sharing all around the known world, eventually they come to Antioch. And it's in Antioch where the Hellenists heard the gospel. Hellenists are Greek-speaking non-Jews. And so what happens, the followers of Jesus Christ, they preach Jesus, and these people came to know Christ as their Savior. And the news of what happened in Antioch, because that's a big deal, there's non-Jews that are placing faith in this Jewish Messiah. And so the, the, they want to find out if this is real. And so they send this guy named Barnabas. Barnabas goes to Antioch, and he sees the grace of God. That's what the Bible says. The grace of God was on them. But what does that exactly mean? He, he, what it means that these people are placing faith in Jesus Christ. That these Greek believers, they believed the Lord. They accepted Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas was glad. And Barnabas challenges them to re remain faithful to their faith. So in Acts chapter 11, we see Barnabas, he goes to Tarsus, and he's looking for Saul. And he finds him and he brings him to Antioch. And these two men disciple believers for an entire year. And it's in Antioch where the first Christians, or excuse me, believers were called Christians. And then so at that point, Barnabas and Saul, they have to take some relief fund down to Judea. And you were, you were with us last week in Acts chapter 12, we talked about King Herod. Now, King Herod, this isn't Herod the Great, that's his grandfather, but Herod the Great, he had several kids, and they carried on the, the name of Herod. Well, in Acts chapter 12, the King Herod, they find, he grabs uh, James, the apostle, and he kills him with a sword, and then he arrests Peter, but then, if you're with us, we talked about how there's this angel that, that broke Peter out of prison. And then Peter goes to the house of Mary, and Mary's the mother of John Mark, we're going to talk about John Mark in a couple weeks, Lord willing. But then Saul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem, and then they come back, and that's where we're at. That's, that's the first half of Acts almost in, in, a, in a nutshell. But I want to give you a 30,000 
foot view of what we're going to look at today. This is the first missionary journey of the book of Acts. So there's Barnabas and there's Saul and these other companions. They take the first missionary trip. The home church in Antioch, that's kind of ground zero for the, the gospel exploding out to the Gentiles. And so these men, they take a 16-mile walk to the, the port of Seleucia. Then from Seleucia, they take a 60-mile boat ride to Salmas. And then to the Isle of the Cyprus, and they, they, then they go to Paphos, and then they leave Paphos, they go to Perga. And it's in Perga that John Mark, and we're going to see this again, Lord willing, in a few weeks, that he leaves. And there's this massive splintering. And Paul and Barnabas, they eventually separate. They go their separate ways because Paul's like, there's no way I'm taking John Mark with us anymore. John Mark's a quitter. He's got a lot of quit at him. He's a mama's boy, and he runs when the going gets tough. I'm not taking him. We're going to read how Barnabas, he's actually John Mark's cousin, is like, no, come on, Paul. We've got we to gotta take him. We've got to take him on this trip. He's, he's got right this time. Give him a second chance. But until then, now they're going to go to Antioch, to Pisidia, down to Iconium, to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Scholars say that Paul walked 20 miles a day throughout the course of this, this journey. And we know that the entire journey was 1,600 miles. But once they get to Derby, they're going to backtrack. He goes to Lystra, to Iconium, then back to Antioch. Does all that make sense? I'm sure everyone's looking at me like a calf at a new gate. Like, what was that all that about? And probably didn't make sense unless you're taking copious notes. And the reason I went through all that is because this was hard work. These men were working their tails off for the gospel I mean, they, they're, 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 at this point, they're going to make their way back to, to Antioch, and they're going to they're gonna face persecution, okay? That's exactly what these men are going to face, because they're out, they're telling people about Jesus, they're, they're making Jesus known to, throughout the whole world, and this world worships a lot of false gods, and they're coming, they're saying, no, your God's false, that Jesus is God, that Jesus came, and he died for your sins, and he rose on the third day, and you have to place faith in him, and this is the only way to the Father, because of that, they face persecution. But this is what Jesus said. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to know that when you trust Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you're immediately clothed in power. You're, you're robed in power. You see, there's this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's the third member of the Trinity. The God that raised Jesus from the dead, His Spirit now lives in you. And then Jesus says, with that, you're going to be my witness. The believers are called to tell every man and woman and child this great news of what a great God has done for sinners. He says, you're going to be my witness. You know what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say you're going to be the jury. That, hey, Christians, you're going to stand and you're going to determine if people are innocent or guilty. He doesn't say that. That is not our jobs. Also, we're not God's defense attorney. God doesn't need a defense attorney. I love apologetics, and apologetics are great, but you do not argue people into the kingdom of God. You know what you do? You love people to the cross. You love people to Jesus. You invest your life in people. You get to know them. You lavish them with love and compassion and grace. Because after all, that's exactly what Jesus did for you, right? People are more loved in the kingdom of God than people are argued in the kingdom of God. 
The Bible doesn't say you're the judge. I'm not the judge. None of us are the judge. In fact, Jesus Christ, he's the judge. The very same one that went to the cross and he died for our sins. In the end of ends, he will judge the living and the dead. And if we take this charge that I'm talking about seriously, if we live our lives for Jesus Christ, you can take it to the bank that you're going to face opposition. I can promise you, you're going to face persecution if you live for Jesus. Because you cannot walk with God and not face persecution. Those two things are interconnected. If you want to, fa- if you want to walk with God, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face hardships. You're going to face trials. You're going to face persecutions. Because God calls all believers, not just pastors, all believers to take this mission seriously. To be intentional about the gospel. So what we're going to see through this text, through Acts 13 and 14, we're going to see intense spiritual battles take place. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was a man that knew about spiritual battles. He knew all about what I'm talking about, this spiritual warfare that goes on. And he writes to the church in Ephesus. He writes this letter. We call it the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 6, he lays out exactly what this looks like. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the presence darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you'll be able to withstand in that evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, if you're quick to make notes in your Bibles, that word scheme there, circle it, underline it, put arrows and asterisks next to it, do whatever you need to do. Because these are the schemes of the devil that Paul is talking about. That we're going to have these schemes of this, this one, he's called the accuser, he's the liar, he's the prince of power of the heirs. So Paul wants us to know if we got issues, if we got drama, it's not with people, it's with the devil. Because if we can touch somebody, feel somebody, smell somebody, your, your beef isn't with, with that person, it's with the devil. Our fights are not political. We don't have human fights with clubs and weapons and swords. Everything is a spiritual fight. I mean like everything. It's all spiritual. And the Apostle Paul, he's a man that knew the depths of the satanic hostility. He understood what it meant to, to, to experience hostile fire. And so this is what Paul is saying. He said, listen up, believer. Put on the whole armor of God and then stand firm. The word schemes in the Greek that Paul uses there, it literally means sneaky devices. That's what it means. You see, what Paul is saying is Satan's going to come at you. And he's going to come at you hard and he's going to come at you fast. And he's going to come at you in ways that you don't expect what he's saying is Satan is never going to square up. He's never going to toe the line. He's gonna, never going to come at you man on man. That's not what he's going to do. Satan's a punk. Satan, yeah, he is. He's a chump. And you know what? He fights like one too. When men have issues, they say, hey, I've got an issue. i got an issue with you. Let's go outside and talk about it. Then you talk for about five seconds. Then you start throwing hands until somebody says, I've had enough. And then you know what men do? They shake hands and then it's over. But that's not what Satan does. He goes behind the backs and he keeps taking pop shots. And if you're down, he keeps taking pop shots and he never stops. Why? Because he's a punk. And this is the reason why Satan fights that way. 
Satan fights that way because he knows something that we are very quick to forget as believers. Satan knows that he who's within you is, is greater. That's what he knows. So he's never going to come at you at a straight-up fight because if Satan did that, he'd get the soup knocked out of him. That's what would happen. If Satan ever came to square, he, so he's never going to do that. Satan fights like guerrilla warfare. That's how Satan comes at you. Guerrilla warfare are these small, mobile, flexible fights, and the tactics they're used are ab- ambush, sabotage. That's what guerrilla warfare likes, looks like. And ultimately, in guerrilla warfare, it's ultimately they're trying to take down a government. The ultimate goal is to destabilize morale and to gain support of the population. So what guerrilla warfare does is it ambushes, it escalates, and, and retreats, and ultimately it's there to overthrow a government. And that's exactly what Satan does within our lives. Satan, he wants to get a following. He aims to get support of the population, so he's sneaky. He ambushes. He, 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 he uses sabotage. And if you decide to live your life missionally, again, if you make up your mind, I'm going to live for Jesus, expect attacks. That's what's going to happen. You can take that to the bank again. You can bet that Satan is going to come at you. And that's what I want to look at today. Some different ways that we can see Satan work in the lives of these men that are on mission for God. Read with me in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So here in in this text, it says that the Holy Spirit said. And so this is what I want us to know. The Holy Spirit is not some weird force. It's not some weird manifestation. No, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is a person. Because only people talk. And so the missionary journey, this is not completely explained to Paul and Barnabas. They don't get all the details. Well, here, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go here, then there, then there. Then you're going to backtrack, and that's the whole plan. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit speaks, and he says, go. And these men answer the call. This is an important decision for the church at Antioch. They're going to send out the first Christian missionaries. And the Holy Spirit speaks, and the church, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas because they know this is a big, big deal to send out these men they're going to send out believers on the first missionary trip. But ultimately, this is God's call. This is God's mission. This is God's plan. And it involved risk, didn't it? And it included persecution. This was God's plan. And did you know God still works this way? This was God's plans 2,000 years ago, and this is still God's plan today. God's plan involves risks, it involves persecution. God didn't change the game plan somewhere along the way. That is God's plan today. So let me ask you a question. Are you taking big risks for the gospel? Are you, do you call yourselves a believer? And if so, are you taking big risks for the gospel? Or are you just playing it safe? I just want to play it safe. I don't want to be this Christian wacko that's living on the edge. No. Are you taking risks for the gospel? How about this? Are you taking risks when it comes to your money? How you spend your money, where you place your money, are you risking for the gospel? How about this? Do you risk when you speak to other people? 
Are you willing to risk and, and tell somebody about Jesus? Because we should. Every single one of us, look what happens next, verse 4. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. I want you to hit rewind just a minute. If we hit rewind on the book of Acts, we'd see that Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. And here they're going to Cyprus. This is what I think is happening. I think maybe Barnabas said, hey, Saul. Saul, I want to go to my hometown. I want to go to my buddies that I used to run with. And I want to tell them about Jesus. There's some guys down there. I love them. They're my friends. I want them to know about a great God that came and died for them. I think Barnabas really wanted to share the gospel with the guys he knew. Look what happens next. Verse 5. It says, when they arrived at Salmas, they proclaimed the word of God in all the synagogues of the Jews. And they, and they, in the synagogues, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was, a, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for this is, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, see, uh, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So it tells us here that, that John, that, 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 that's mentioned there, this is John Mark. He's also the writer of the Gospel of Mark. These guys are going through the whole area, and they're telling everybody about Jesus. And they went to this Jewish synagogue, and, and they, they, they go to the people outside the Jewish faith, but there's this certain man, his name is Bar-Jesus. Well, the name, with the word Bar, it means son of. He's the son of some other guy named Jesus. This isn't the Jesus we worship. This is just some guy with the same name. And then it tells us that there's this also this, he was a false prophet, but along with this other guy, Sergius Apollos. These guys, they call Saul and Barnabas, and they want to hear this gospel they're preaching. Hey, come and tell us this message that is seemingly taking over the world. And then there's this third guy that comes in the scene. His name is Elimus. He's a magician, and, he tells, and that tells us that he worships the false god of witchcraft. So what happens is here is that Paul and Barnabas, they come and they preach the gospel, and this third guy, he counterpunches the gospel with a lie. The reason why people do this really is for their self-interest. Because here, if the masses start believing this message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching, well then, Elimus, Elimus excuse me, he was going to lose influence with the community. So Satan, remember, his tactics are very sneaky. He uses whatever it takes to tape, keep people from, from, from following Jesus. So here's the first tactic that we're going to see this morning. Tactic number one of the enemy, it's self-interest. If the devil can get people to focus on what's good for themselves, well, then it will force people to take their eyes off of Jesus. There's this, this guy named Elmas, and he doesn't want people to place saving faith in Jesus Christ because that will really cause him to lose influence. Keep reading. Look what happens next. Look in verse 9. It says, But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intensely at him. Stop right there. This is a verse that's very easy just kind of gloss over and to, to not really dive into what we saw here. In verse 9, this is the very first time in the book of Acts there's a switch. We see a switch from Saul to Paul. And I think it happens for a reason. Very often Christians will say something like, we'll see Jesus changed Saul to Paul. But that's not what the Bible says. Okay, The Bible says that the, this is Saul who's also called Paul. 
You see, Paul changed his name. And I think Paul, Saul, changed his name to Paul for a very strategic reason. Go back into Acts, to Acts chapter 9, we saw the conversion. We saw where Saul was, 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 came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Fast forward to where we are now, about 14 years have passed. So it's not like all of a sudden Saul's like, hey, I don't want to be remembered as the persecutor of Christians. I want to change my name. That's not what's going on. So I think that the name change has an intentional point. We're going to see down the road, Lord willing, in Acts 22, we're going to see that he's taking the gospel to all over the Roman Empire. And we need to know that Saul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens have Roman names. And having Roman name, that tells somebody that they also have Roman rights. But Saul, when he was a little baby, his, his Jewish parents gave him a Jewish name. When you hear the name Saul, you should think of the first king of Israel. He was Saul. He was the, the king who was tall, dark, and handsome. He was, the God, he was the people's choice. It wasn't God's choice. God's choice was David, but Saul's parents named him after the first king. So Saul of Tarsus, he was the guy that walked into synagogues, and he, he told people about this Jewish Messiah. He's engaging the Jewish people with the gospel, but Paul wasn't called to take the gospel to the Jews. That's the Apostle Peter's job. Saul was charged to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that when he changes his name to Paul, that gives him street cred. That tells the whole world, he's saying, hey guys, I'm a Roman just like you. So the name change is very, very important. Look, let's read that again, verse 9. It says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord was upon, was upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went with, about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what, what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here's what we just read. Let me give you the reader's digest of what Paul just did. He snapped. Here's a guy that's preaching lies, who's telling lies about Paul, and Paul snaps. Did you know pastors can do that sometime? Yeah, that's what Paul just did. Yeah. He didn't mince words. He calls this guy a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. You see, remember Elemis? He wants to maintain his influence, his status, his power, his prestige with the proconsul. And so he's, connect, he's connected to the government. And he doesn't want to lose his status. He doesn't want to lose all that. That's why he counters Paul's truth with this lie. Ultimately, he cares about what's good for himself. He's take, he's, he cares about taking care of his number one. It's all about self-interest. And this is what I want you to know. That our greatest obstacle for living missionally for Jesus is our own self-interest. Why would I say that? Why would I, I say that what's going to stop us from living for Jesus is our self-interest? I say that because our world is fueled by self-interest. People are selfish, and they're really, they're interested in taking care of what's best for themselves. And if we choose to preach this message of the gospel, we're going to upset some people. 
Because the message of the gospel tells people you're not right with God. But gospel says that we're all sinners. And every, every one of deep down of us, every single one of us, we're wrong. And if you tell somebody that, you're going to offend people. And that's why people walk away from the gospel. And some people will even kind of water down the gospel. They'll dumb down the gospel. They'll let go of some of the core essentials because really they want to be liked by people. And again, the gospel offends. It's offensive. When you say Jesus is the only way, that there's no other way to the Father, you will not be liked. When you say that you're saved by grace and not works, that's not a popular message. When you say there's such a thing as truth, and truth is objective, it's not subjective. When you tell somebody you don't invent truth, you find truth within the pages of the Bible. If you preach that, you're not going to be liked. But the moment we give in to pressure, the moment we give in and we begin to change the gospel or water down the gospel, really we're doing the same thing as Elmas did. And God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to stand on truth. God wants us to preach the truth. But at the same time, He wants us to be full of grace. Jesus was 100% truthful and 100% full of grace. Full of truth, full of grace at the exact same time. Jesus was perfectly able to balance these two things. And you know what? God calls us to do the exact same thing. Read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. The Word of God says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I mean, think about that. If you're a believer, you've been entrusted with the gospel. A sovereign God, the creator God of the universe, if you're a believer, he's entrusted that with you. He's seen it fit to give you the gospel that you would take this message and you would share it with us. I mean, he could do this any way he chooses, but yet he chooses to work through you. And let me tell you, if you want to please people, then you're not going to be pleasing to God. Christians are called to live for God and let the chips fall wherever they may. We don't champion our opinions. We champion the truths. We champion the word of God. We're going to see in a moment that Paul and his companions, they're going to set sail to Paphos and come down to Perga and, and Pamphylia. And again, that's where John Mark is going to leave the missionary team. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. We'll look at that later. But they leave Perga. They go to Antioch and Pisidia. And that's where they go down to the synagogues. They go to where the people at. And they share the gospel. And so here's these men in the synagogue, and they're blown away by the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. They're so blown away, they call them back the next, the next Sabbath. Look what happens. Jump down to verse 44 of chapter 13. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Here's the second tactic that we can see through this text that Satan's going to use to try to stop you. Tactic number two, jealousy. Satan's sneaky. He's got these schemes, remember, these sneaky devices, and he can use jealousy to cause people to revile the followers of Christ. Because here we see they're in the synagogues and the whole city is there. Imagine what that looked like. Imagine if we're, we're here in this place on our Sunday, not the Sabbath, but the Sunday, and the whole city of Orleans showed up. 
It'd be loud, right? It'd be crazy. People would be yelling and screaming. And here's these guys are filled with jealousy, and they begin to contradict the teachings of Paul. They're beginning to talk trash about Paul. Here's what I want you to know about jealousy. Jealousy will mess you up. It can really damage your heart. Don't let it do that. Don't allow jealousy to come in and, and change your heart. These people, they allowed jealousy to drive them to fits of anger. Look what happened, verse 46 of chapter 13. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is what Paul just said. He said, hey, we came to you, we preached the truth, we gave it to you. Since you won't even listen, we're going to take it to someone else. Paul couldn't reach these people. He couldn't reach the Jews in Antioch. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't hear. And that's amazing because think about it. Here is Paul, maybe one of the most intelligent men to ever walk the earth. He is a former Pharisee. He, he goes on to write in almost half of our New Testament he is a missionary, church planner, pastor. And there's some people he can't reach with the gospel. You know what that tells me? I got some news for you. There's people you're not going to be able to reach with the gospel. You're going to preach the gospel and there are going to be people that say, you know what, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't believe it. No matter what you say, no matter how convincing your arguments may be, there's some people that don't want the truth. You know why? Because they have hard hearts. They believe what they believe, which happens to be a lie. So if they say that the gospel is right, then deep down they have to say that they're wrong. And so they reject the truth. Here's what you should do. Stay the course. Stay the course and continue to preach the gospel. If you face opposition, continue the course. There's going to be people that are against you. They're going to be against your witness, and there's going to be people against what you stand for. There's going to be people that are against your love for Jesus. There's going to be people that say you're a crazy Christian nut job. Here's the deal. Stay the course. Embrace the mission. Life is going to be hard if you live for the glory of Jesus. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust on their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Here's the third tactic we can see of Satan. Tactic number three, slander. Slander. If you're trying to live for Jesus, Satan's going to slander you. Now, before I get to the real text at hand, I want to kind of rabbit trail here for a second. You see in this text, it says, but they shook their dust off their feet. There are certain cults. They're going to come to your house and they knock on, their do on your door and they're going to tell you this lie. And if you don't accept what they, what they preach or if you preach the truth to them, watch them as they leave your house. They'll walk down your driveway, down your walkway or whatever, and they'll click their heels together like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. They get it from this text. Terribly ironic because they're not preaching the gospel that Paul and Barnabas, but whatever. Anyways, let's get to the real issue at hand. Here's the real issue. Control issues. Do you know people have control issues? Raise your hand if you have a control issue. Okay, those of you without your hand up, you have a lying issue too. Because we all have control issues. Every single one of us. Christians and non-Christians. 
We all have control issues. And non-Christians, they believe largely that they're running their lives. They want to be in control of their lives. They, they think that they can tr- control their lives better than God can. And people fear Jesus because people fear losing control. But we should surrender our lives. Surrender our lives to Jesus. And, and that's a beautiful thing, to give your life to a sovereign, loving, perfect God. And when you surrender your life to Jesus, you're surrendering your life to a greater calling, a greater love, a greater treasure that we can only find in Jesus Christ. And if we preach this message, people are going to slander you. People are going to revile you. Read what Jesus said about this in Matthew 5, verse 11. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great and his reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you choose to preach the gospel, you're going to be slandered. You're going to have people revile against you. You know why? Because they can't let go of their control issues. But here's the thing. You cannot run your own life. You're going to fail if you try. The only correct answer is to give your life to God. Let's jump ahead to the middle of chapter 14 and read what's happening. Look in verse 11. It says, and the crowd saw Paul, what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices saying in Lacedaemonian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Here's what's going on. They're worshiping Paul and Barnabas as if they are God themselves. Look what happens next, verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed to the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that's in them. So here's the next, the next tactic we see of Satan. Tactic number four, false worship. If we were to back up and read all of chapter 14, what happened is God healed a man at the beginning of this chapter, and he used Paul to do it. Well, now everybody in the city wants to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they're gods. You know, but think about it. To a person that doesn't know the one true God, this would look like Paul is the miracle worker, even though we know that God's a miracle worker. And so all the people, they wanted to make sacrifice and worship Paul and Barnabas. And this is what I want you to know about that. Hostility is going to come in all sorts of different forms. Hostility from from Satan is going to come in in self-interest, it's going to come in slander, it's going to come in jealousy, but nothing is off limits to Satan. And Satan will do whatever it takes to make you or someone else not follow Jesus. He'll even prop up something else to take Jesus' place. You see, Satan's going to change his strategy, and he's going to keep changing his strategy until he finds what works on you. Satan will think, well, hey, if I can't tear them down, this is what I'll do. I'll build them up, and I'll get them to worship something other than God. And that's exactly what Satan does here, and that's exactly what he does in our lives too. He will get us to worship something else, maybe ourselves, something other than Jesus. 
So here the people are worshiping Paul and Barnabas and the, the apostles hear this and they tear their clothes and they rush in the crowd. They're going, why are you doing this? Don't worship us. We're men just like you. Verse 16 says, in the past generation, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven in a fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with the words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. These people, they really want to worship Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're, even though Paul's saying, don't do this, they keep worshiping Paul and Barnabas as, as if they're God. Look in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Man, that, that turned in a heartbeat, didn't it? One minute they're getting worshiped like God, the next minute they're getting cracked in the head. Keep reading. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Bar uh, Barnabas to Derby. Here's the fifth tactic I want to point out to you this morning. Tactic number five, physical violence. I want to say this about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is about one of the most manliest men in the entire Bible. He takes a, he takes a beating and he goes back for a second beating. And really, this is so much more than a beating. This is a stoning. Now, I've taken a few beatings in my life. I've never been hit in the head with rocks until people thought I was dead. Let me talk about that for a minute. This, when you get stoned, it's not little pebbles, and they're just going to pelt you with little pebbles. It's also not a giant stone where they just crush you in one fell swoop. No, this is like grapefruit-sized rocks. And they keep hitting you and hitting you and hitting you until eventually they think you're dead. So everyone's hurling rocks at Paul. Their rocks are pelting him all over his body. I'm sure there's blood running down his face. So far that, I mean, so long that eventually they thought he was dead. And they leave. And then the disciples come and Paul gets up. Maybe his buddies helped him up. I don't know. And did you see what Paul did? He goes back to the city. They pelt him with the rocks until he thought he was dead. He gets up. He kind of clears his mind and says, I gotta go tell people about Jesus. Like, hey, Paul, wait a minute. Is, is it one beating enough for you? He's like, no, come on, round two. Let's get this on. Hey, Paul, but they tried to murder you. Paul's like, I'm still breathing, right? The reason I'm still breathing is so I could press air through my vocal cord and I can say the name of Jesus. Do you think a little blood and a concussion is going to stop a guy like Paul? No way. Because Paul is a man that knew that if he's still breathing, it's because God has a big plan for him. He knew that God had a big plan, and that included that God or that Paul would tell lost people about Jesus. He would tell people they need to give your life to Jesus. Look what happens next. Look in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to the city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and, staying, and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. That's a weird saying, isn't it? Read that in verse 22. It says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know what that's saying? Here, let me say in, in Pastor John's uh, vernacular, life's hard. Life's real hard. People want, always want to say, oh, just come to Jesus and everything's going to be great and everything's going to be lovely. That's not what I read in the Bible. There's so many that follow the prosperity gospel that preaches that. I don't read that. 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's saying that life's not going to be a bowl full of cherries. That if you live your life for Jesus, if you live it to the fullest, then expect Satan's going to do whatever he can to get people to not listen to you. He's going to try to take you out. He's going to slander you. He's going he's to tell lies. He's going to lift something up to try to get people's eyes off of Jesus. This life is no vacation. But guess what? It's no joke either. And the devil's going to try to take you out if you're living your life for Jesus. You know, Jesus said this one day. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. But then he said something about himself. He said, but in me you will have peace. You know, even though Satan tries to kill Paul, look what happens next. Go to verse 23. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed um, them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and then they had spoken the word in Perga. They went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, and they had been commended to the grace of God, to the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. Then they declared all that God had done with them and how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Do you know that God has work for you too? That God has a purpose for your life? If you don't know what the purpose for your life is, let me tell you what your purpose and my purpose and all of our purpose is. Our very purpose in life is to know God and to make Him known. That's all of our purpose. That's exactly what these believers in the first century church were doing. They're telling people about Jesus and then they're discipling people that made a decision for Christ. You know what the first century church was about? Helping people find and follow Jesus. Man, that's a great motto. Someone should come up with that someday. I just ripped off the church. That's all I did. That's what the first century church was doing, and that's what the 21st century church is supposed to be doing. Is it difficult? Yes, it is. Satan's going to use any tactic he's got. He's going to throw everything at you and the kitchen sink to make you stop worshiping Jesus, to get you to stop telling people about Jesus. But you know, that's exact. Jesus told us this is what we're to do back 2,000 years ago when he left. He says, you're to go into the world Basically, to preach the gospel, baptize those that place faith in me, make disciples. That's what we're supposed to do. And he said this. He said, I'm coming back. Did you know Jesus is coming back? Here's the question. Are you ready? If you're a believer, are you living your life for Jesus? Are you living your life on mission for Jesus? Because we all should be. It's not the pastor's job. It's all the believer's job to tell people about Jesus. So are you ready for Jesus' return? If not, then why don't you make a decision to be ready for should he come back today? That's what supposed to, believers are supposed to be doing. What about unbelievers? There has to be a moment where you place saving faith in Jesus Christ. That when you place faith, you have to come to know that you're a sinner. That every single one of us in thoughts and actions and deeds, we've done things that are sinful. That we shouldn't do. And that sin separates us from God. Meaning every single person, we're all going to hell. But God didn't want that. God sent His one and only Son, born of a baby, to come to this earth on a rescue mission, to live a perfect life, and then go to the cross the whole time. 
Jesus was focused on the cross throughout his entire life. And then at the end, he went. He willingly gave himself. And at his very end, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave his spirit. Nobody took the life of Jesus. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. And he was buried in a tomb. And then he rose on the third day, proving that he could defeat death and sin. And he could, he could grant eternal life. The Bible has a beautiful promise. Says, Whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Not that we can hope we can be saved. It says you will be saved. If you believe in your heart and confess your mouth that Jesus died and he rose again, you will be saved. So I want to give you the opportunity to do that right here, right now, to call on the name of Jesus. If you don't know where you're going, choose your end of your day, come today, I would beg you to pray a prayer. Say something along the lines of, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But yet you love me so much. You came and you paid the price for what I have done. Save me, Lord. And I say this in your holy, precious name. Amen.